me encourage you tonight to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, start in verse 1. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. Before we get started tonight, let me encourage you, and one, one quick thing, really. Um... There aren't many of you here tonight, uh, and that's okay. I know there's a lot of a couple different things going on tonight, but let me let me encourage you to continue inviting and bringing your friends, even the ones that come to our church on a regular basis. Encourage them to be here on Wednesday nights. Uh, we're walking through Scripture. Uh, it's a great um, it's a great opportunity uh, for us to gather together just as students, uh, do some fun things, and hang out together and kind of mutually support each other. You'll hear a little bit about that uh, tonight. I just had a little moment of panic because I have a note from Kristen again, and I thought I brought the one from last week, but you just brought the same note. <laughs> so I was like, is this the, my notes from last week? But no, I'm good. Okay. So Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, Lane did a great job last week uh, on prayer. So I want to thank him. He's not here, but thank him for filling in on prayer. Let me encourage you to continue. How to be a praying teenager kind of was his topic last week. Uh, but let's look at Ephesians chapter Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This entire chapter of Ephesians is about how we can be brought into a relationship with God. It talks about us before we have a relationship with God. It talks about how we come into a relationship with God. And it talks about what we need to do after we have that relationship with God. It's, salvation is a free gift that's offered to us by uh, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who laid down His life for us. But it also teaches us tonight how that free gift of salvation leads us to be a faithful servant of God. Salvation is free. When we accept the gift of salvation, we enter into the kingdom of God, which means we go and we do what God wants us to do. In a way, it's ourselves dying so that others can live. All right? Who knows what cannibals are? What's a cannibal? You said you were going to have duct tape. You forgot. Your words, not mine. What's a cannibal? Okay, Skylar, what do you got? Um, don't be too graphic, please. You don't have to. What's a cannibal? Cannibals basically eat their own species. They eat their own species. Cat eat cat, dog eat. Exactly right. You got the perfect definition. Cannibalism or cannibals. It's cannibalism is the practice of eating the flesh of one's own species. Is exactly what it is. Good job, Skylar. It happens in the animal world much more frequently than in the human world. All right? The practice has all but disappeared from the human world, but it's not completely gone. All right? It's not all away. It's not all it's not all completely gone. There are some some tribes of predominantly South Asian people in like the Pacific Islands area where it still exists, but in the 1800s and before, it was a lot more common. There was a guy, his name was James Calvert. If you want to look him up, the first thing that pops up, if you do a Google search and his image, this guy had a sick beard. He's awesome, okay? 1800s, awesome beard, like you'd see like a Civil War type beard. This guy was awesome. He was from Britain. He was from United Kingdom. He was a Methodist guy. He went to a Methodist church there in the United Kingdom. And he learned of the location of a cannibalistic tribe in the South Pacific that had never been engaged with the gospel ever. No one had ever gone there. 
It's what we call an unengaged, unreached people group. There are unreached people groups, people where less than 1% of the population is a believer. Uh, the entire province of Quebec in Canada is defined as an unreached people group. Less than 1% of those people are evangelical Christians. An unengaged, unreached people group, no missionary, no gospel presence has ever gone to their location. And there are thousands of these still in the world today. But in the 1800s, he found out about this island people group in the South Pacific that was unengaged, unreached with the gospel. No missionary had ever gone to them. No one had ever told them about Jesus. And, but there, there, was one, well, there was one real problem. Uh, they were cannibals. All right? And most cannibal groups, if they had a choice, and it came down to a choice of cannibalizing your own people, a rival tribe of which there were none living on the island, or somebody that came in, they're going to pick the outsider first, a rival tribe second, and then their own people. So this guy was stepping into a pretty uh, desperate situation. He knew by going to that place that he was putting himself, and he took his family, by the way, to put them under great risk. They didn't come with him initially, but eventually they joined him. But he was not deterred. So this is what he did. Check this out. This guy's crazy. All right? Crazy for Jesus, though. He boarded a ship from England, traveled all the way around this long journey on a boat. And along the way, not many people were getting off on the Cannibal Island. And so he had an opportunity to talk to the captain of the ship multiple times. And they just, on a long journey from England to the South Pacific, you have some time to talk, you don't have anything to look at. And so they began to talk. And the captain basically began to try to talk him out of what his plan was, just to go to this island. We don't know if the captain was a believer or not. There's some records of that, but we're not exactly sure. But it doesn't really matter. He tried to talk him out of it. And the captain of the ship said this to him. He said, you will risk your life and all those with you if you go among such, such savages. And the, and the gentleman, Calvert, replied, and this is word for word what he said. We died before we came here. We died before we came. He understood the message of dying to self. Do we? Paul tells us that we've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ within me. And that's what he was expressing. I'm already dead. doesn't matter. All right? So let's look at the scripture. Ephesians chapter 2. This will be the underpinning for what we're looking for tonight. Not just a weird story about cannibals. Okay? Please don't go home and tell your parents all we talked about tonight was cannibalism. All right? Although I will talk about it some more. Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh. I lost my spot. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by which, by what is called the circumcision. This is the argument about Jews and Gentiles, basically, here is what he's saying. Two different groups of people. Which is made in the flesh by, by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise. Having no hope without and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the laws of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles here, is what he's talking about. Ephesians, Ephesus, full of Gentile people. And what he's saying is, Christ came, he's the Messiah, the Jews, most of them don't recognize it, but he also came from you. There's no longer this dividing law, there's no longer these ordinances and rules, and you got to do this in the temple and all that stuff. Christ, he, he, he came and fulfilled all of that. So that's the, what he's talking about. Thereby killing the hostility. The, the Jews and the Gentiles were arguing all the time. It's, it's done. We're, we're done with that. That's what he said. And he came and preached peace who were far off, and peace to those who were near. That's the Jews. For through him we have both we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's a key phrase, the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together in dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All right, we're not going to read every single thing in there again tonight, but I'm going to walk through a few of these things. If I forget one, somebody give me a handout, okay, because I will forget. Somebody, who's got an extra? Extra. All right, so here's what we're going to do. So what it seems like, uh, what, what we see here is what I like to call the great contrast. The great contrast. The transition statement is found in the first two words of verse 4. Look at that in your Bible, verse 4. What are the first two words of verse 4? Hopefully it's, but God, but God. That's the break, that's the transition. Before that phrase, before that phrase, it's all the bad stuff. That's what we're going to look at first. After that phrase, it's what Christ did for us. And finally, what are we supposed to do? Okay? We are called, and this is the first one, we were called dead in our trespasses. Or a lot of translations say sins. Trespasses or sins. We were dead in them. Dead or disobedient. The offenses against God caused the death. What we did caused death. What Adam did and led us to caused death. Ephesians 4.18. If you like to write down extra scriptures, this is one you can write down. Just the reference. Ephesians 4.18 said, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness, due to the hardness of their heart. It's the deadness that's caused the exclusion. We're dead, we're excluded from God because God's a life-giving God. He's not a dead God, he's a living God. We're cut off from spiritual life because of that. But before that, we're dead. Okay? The next thing Paul calls us, and this is my paraphrase, he calls us a Satan lover. <laughs> he says, You love Satan. That's what he's saying. Alright? That is not a good place to be. Alright? Raise your hand tonight if you love Satan. Katie, Avery, put your hand down. That's my cat's name. You, that's your cat's name? No. Are you for real? response to it. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Don't love Satan. Pause. 
But Paul says, before you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you loved Satan. Okay? Paul, tell, tell us how you really feel here, right? All right? Seems a little bit blunt. How many of you like raising canes? Okay? All right? If you don't, I don't want to hear about it because you're wrong. Okay? Raising canes, great. All right? Here's their logo. All right? Raising canes. Watch their catchphrase at the bottom. One love. One love. Okay? They only do chicken. They, they, they have fries and they have slaw, but nobody goes there. I eat the slaw, but I don't go there for the slaw. All right? It's like the, the Texas. It is good. Right? It is good. We have to order like seven with our family, and there's only four of us. One love. They do chicken. They have a sandwich. It's not really a sandwich. It's not a chicken sandwich. It's, it's just strips, right? I just ordered it one day to be different. Okay, it's not even like a, it's just the strips. There's like three of them on there. It's good because it's Cane's chicken strips. But it's real. They have one love, right? They're everything, right? They're in San Angelo. They're in Lubbock. They're opening in Midland. Did y'all know this? Okay, it's right next to Sam's. I saw it. They're building it, okay? What? They're building one in Midland. That's what it is. It's not that weird building. It's in front of it. We've gone off track here. Let's go back to Cain's. Their slogan, one love. They make chicken. They fry it, and it's good. They do one thing. Before Christ, we had one love, and Paul says it was Satan. <laughs> it was not doing what God wanted us to do. After we come into a relationship with God, we're supposed to love Him. But before, we have one love, and it's not a good thing. He called us Satan lovers. It's not good. Okay. But the third thing he says is that we're sons or daughters of disobedience. If you don't know how to spell it, make it up. Okay? Sons or daughters of disobedience. Each of you here in this room tonight are, are a son or a daughter of someone. How many of you here tonight have ever in your entire life disobeyed a parent at least once? You've disobeyed your parents at least once. We all have. All right? Okay? When I was about 10 years old, I have two younger brothers. No, I didn't bully him. My brother, my middle brother was bigger. Okay. When I was 10 years old, me and my middle brother, who's he's only 18 months younger than me, and he was always bigger. He's both of my brothers are taller than me. We like to play baseball. Let's not. We were playing little league baseball. We were in a league at the time, uh, on the team together every other year, and how that kind of worked. But one day we went into our backyard and we just invited some friends over. We were playing just a little pickup game of baseball. We didn't have any like bases, like little plastic rubbery bases. We didn't have anything. So we just used whatever we could find to, or say it's right there, you know, and it doesn't matter. Whatever. But we went out there that day. My dad was in the process of working on our home or somebody was doing some work on our home. Maybe we were adding on. I don't remember. But there was a big pile of bricks in the backyard. And my mom, before we went out, these were her words. If, if she was here tonight, she could tell you the story. Okay? Do not mess with the bricks or anything else related to the construction project going on in the backyard. What do you think me as a 10-year-old and him as an 8-year-old did as soon as we walked outside? We messed with the bricks. We used a brick with a jagged edge as second. Okay? That's what we did. We're playing baseball. Brick is second base. Okay? If you ever do that, don't do what my brother did. Uh, this brick was actually an upgrade from the week before when we found a dead guinea pig and used it as second base. Mom was really not happy about that. Okay? So we used a brick. We thought it was a better idea. Did you kill the guinea pig? No, it was just dead. We just found it. Okay? 
<laughs> so my brother, as an eight-year-old, give or take, had a brilliant idea of sliding headfirst into second into the brick, sliced his hand right open. If, if he was here tonight, you could see the scar. It's right between here. He sliced it open. My mom comes out. He's screaming, probably crying. My mom came out, like, put a rag or something around it. It was bleeding like crazy. Then she yelled at him for being stupid and doing what he wasn't supposed to do. And then they went to the hospital. Got it sewn up with four or five stitches. Never again did we use a guinea pig or a brick at second base. But do you know what that made my brother? And I'm involved in this too because I, I want to think it's probably my idea. Okay. I was, my brother was always the one that got in trouble. But most of the stuff was my idea. But I just let him take the blame. Do you know what my brother is at that point? Towards my mother? He is what my mother and God would call a son of disobedience. Okay? Not doing what he was instructed to do. You had one job. Don't play with the bricks. That's what we did. Okay? Paul says in this passage of scripture, that's what you are. Hear me tonight, students. Paul says you're a son or a daughter of disobedience. We have been told what to do, and we don't do it. We've been told what not to do, and we go do it anyway. Next, Paul calls us lovers of flesh. All right? This has nothing to do with cannibalism. Okay? This has everything to do with wanting to do what we think is good, what we feel is good, what we want to do, because we, in our heads and in our minds and our actions, say we know better than God. I want to do what I want to do. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I want to do what I want to do. That's what it means to be a lover of flesh. Paul is saying here is we think we know better. And Paul says, no, you don't. God does. All right? We want to satisfy our sin nature. We inherited it from Adam, and we're screwed up, all right? Our idea, not God, God's idea. But Paul says, here's the other thing. This is the next one. You also have a screwed up mind. Your mind is screwed up. So even if you're living in your flesh and somehow managing to keep that under somewhat control, you've at least thought about it. You've thought about doing the wrong thing. You remember what Jesus said about adultery in the Sermon on the Mount? What did he say? If you've even looked upon a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery. He's laying out the same idea. Your, your mind is messed up. Your actions are wrong and your mind is wrong. Well, crap, that messes it up, doesn't it? Right? We're messed up in the head. And that leads us to the awesome last thing that Paul calls us. He says you are a child of wrath. Okay? All right? Wrath. Wrath. <laughs> wrath. So you're dead in your sins and trespasses. You love Satan. You're a son or daughter of disobedience. You're a lover of flesh. you got a screwed up head. And oh, by the way, you are a child of wrath. If Ephesians ends with verse chapter 2, verse 3, that sucks. Okay? But praise be to God, it doesn't. Because then we get verse 4. But God. But God. This is you. But God. And now we see what happens. Hi, little Billy. Hi, little Susie. You're a child of wrath, but I love you. Right? No parent, no parent says that, right? Let me tell you what your parents do say, though. Listen up. This is, this is how this works in our world today. It's not what our culture says. Our culture says, you know what? He's a good kid. He's a good boy. Pretty good girl. They're not so bad, all right? Yeah, they got caught cheating on the test, but you know what? At least they're not vaping in the parking lot. At least they're not doing this on Friday night. At least the cops didn't show up at the party they were at. At least they didn't cuss me out. My kid's pretty respectful. 
They, they only cussed me out like four times last week. You know, my kids are not as bad as those other kids. All right? Listen, check this out. I sit with your parents at football games and basketball games, and I hear them talk. Not particularly your parents, but I hear parents talk. And they say things exactly like what I just said. All right? If y'all have the, what's the word Audacity? Yeah. So these are things that I hear. Oh, my kid's not as bad as that kid. Hey, check this out. It doesn't matter how not bad you are, you're still separated from God by your actions. But God made a way. Okay? Is he speaking just about children and teenagers? No, he's speaking about parents and adults as well. Who's the father that's being spoken about in this passage of scripture? It's not your parents, who is it? It's God. It's God. It's everybody. All of us are separated from God, dead in our sins, children of wrath. This is not a passage about children or teenagers. This is a passage about humans. Check out what this one guy said. This is a, a guy, his name is, his name is Tony Marita. He's a pastor in North Carolina. And he said, many think God in the Old Testament is a God of wrath. But the God of the New Testament is like Mr. Rogers or some awesome happy guy all the time. Wrong. What we have now is a period of patience. A period of patience. The door of mercy is open wide and we can come into his grace and be saved. But the coming wrath of God is worse than anything that ever happened in the Old Testament. This passage of scripture is awful if we stop right there. But God doesn't stop there. But God. God is... And here's where we're moving on to God's actions. God is rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. He shows great mercy. Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone that has the ability to punish you or harm you. That's what mercy is. You don't deserve it. You deserve punishment. But God chooses not to. He shows you mercy. Next thing that God does is he has great love. So it's because of his great, God's great love. Think back to all those other things. Do you deserve to be loved by God? No. Not really. But are you? Yes. Yeah. In, in the book of Luke, Jesus tells a story. It's right after he teaches the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says this. In Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 12. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. So if you are evil, so if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? That's what God does. You don't deserve it, but He gives it to you anyway. You don't deserve love, but God gives it to you anyway. Verse 5 tells us, and this is the next one, that we've been made alive in Christ. Made alive in Christ. This stands in great contrast to the first part of the chapter. You're dead. Now you're alive. Not ourselves, but we're made alive in who? Christ. This is God's thing. You're not alive in your own strength. We can't do it on our own. How many of you, every day you run into something bad and you're like, hey, I got this. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't got it. God has it. Your salvation is wrapped up. If you think you have it all under control, you don't. God has it under control. Heaven and being in heaven with God forever is a great benefit, but it's in Christ. Next thing we see is that God's free gift of salvation is through Christ Jesus. Okay? Made alive in Christ. By grace, through faith. Number four, by grace. Number five, through faith. 
Not because of works, like verse 9 tells us, but because of grace, which verse 5 and verse 8 tell us, <laughs> through faith, not us, God. And that leads us to the last thing, salvation or union with Christ. Salvation or union with Christ. The word there, union, I'm not going to spell this word for you because I don't even know how to say it. The word in the New Testament is synergerian. It's a Greek word, and we get our word sync or synchronized from it. So like synchronized swimming. Shh, listen up, listen up. We get our word sync. For, for us, we like to have things in sync. All right, here's the part you're not going to like, okay? All right? It's fine, though. All right? I am running my presentation software from my iPhone right now, okay? In the back of the room is my iMac where the presentation software is running. I forgot to wear my Apple Watch, all right? It's at home on the charger. I'm recording my message on my iPad right here. I have everything Apple makes, okay? I, I own it all. I, love I, I, I type this on my MacBook Pro that's in my office. I, I used to have one. Okay. Probably still do. I'm like thoroughly into the Mac ecosystem, the Apple ecosystem, all right? I'm the geek that watched the, the announcement the other, in school. I was at work then. Okay, all right. So here's what happens. If I, if I were to add a song, if I were to add a song in my MacBook Pro in my office, in, in my Apple Music, it's going to show up in my playlist down here on my iMac. It'll also be on my phone if I want to listen to it on the way home. It'll go wherever I want it to go. It's in sync. It's constantly syncing across all of my devices that I'm signed into on my Apple ID. All right? I add a song, I do this. I download a podcast, it's there, right? It's just all, it's going to be in sync. That's the word Paul is talking about here. All right? Now, whether you like Apple products or not, which I know you don't, some of you. That's the word that Paul is using. We're in sync. It's the same with us and God. As a believer, as a Christian, you are in sync with God. It's the same across all fronts. When Jesus came out of the tomb after he was killed, we got up with him. We were raised. Colossians 2.12 says it this way, and I'll, I'll put it up on the screen for you. Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you... Check that out. Look up there. In which you were also raised. Not just Jesus, but you. We're raised with him through the faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You share in this. You're in sync with God. So understanding that Christ now lives in us is where we need to be. And it starts in verse 10. What are we going to do with this? Go back to verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. This is the why. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works that God has already done for us. And so I see four reasons that we're... We're to do this. Number one, the first thing, is because we have been brought near to God, not led far away. Brought near to God, not left far away. We led far. We don't deserve what we get, but God has brought us near, not left us out there hanging. Right? He's brought us near, not separated us. Number two, because you've been made one with God. You've been made one with God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20 puts it this way. You do not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, 
whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Everything. Right? Honor God. You and God are in this thing together. He did the work of salvation. Now he's asking you to follow through and do the things he's got ready for you. Number three, we're in the family. In the family. Verse 19 of Ephesians 2. Family is the word. Ephesians 2, verse 19. I pointed this out to you earlier. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're in the same household as God. You've been brought into the family. With Jesus Christ, you're with Him. He's in your family. You are in His family. And it's the cornerstone. It's the whole thing, right? Fourth and finally tonight, we get to dwell in Christ. Dwell. D-W-E-L-L. Being built together for a dwelling place for God. A place for Christ to live is what the word means here. A dwelling place. Why does God, through His Son Jesus, need to reside or live or dwell in us? Why? Why does Jesus need to dwell in us? What do you think? He's in heaven, right? So why does He want to dwell in us? We're doing his work. Yep. So he can be with us. Okay. We're, we're God's only, we're, we're man's only hope for salvation. Believers in whom Christ is dwelling, we're the ones that go out and tell it. So tonight I have two questions for you. And some of these questions you may need to ask your friends as well. You'll see why in a second. Two questions. Number one, does Christ, does Christ dwell in you? Does Christ dwell in you? Has there ever been a point in your life where you prayed to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? Has there ever been a point in your life? Ask your friends that question. If you want to walk up to them in the hall tomorrow and ask them, has there ever been a point in your life where you prayed to receive Christ? They may look at you a little weird. Start a conversation with them first. Find out how their day is going. You'd be amazed. You'd be amazed if you ask somebody, how's your day going? And they say, fine. But they look back at you like, like it's been the worst day of your life, and, and you say to them, you know it doesn't look like it? What's going on? Everybody everybody says the same thing, right? How's your day? Fine. I'm good. Whatever. But you can look at somebody and say, you know what? It doesn't look like you're having a great day. Okay? Can I pray for you? Enter into a conversation. Get to the point where you can ask them, you know what? I, You know, we're good friends. Has there, do, do you go to church? That's great. But has there ever been a point in your life where you prayed to accept Christ as your Savior? Ask them that question. Don't ever assume that they already do. But the second question tonight, and maybe some of you here, most of you here tonight probably already prayed to accept Christ. But here's a great question for you. Is He truly dwelling in you? Have you invited Him not only to be in your life, but He's living with you? He's living with you. Some of us like to treat them like a grandma that comes to our house or you go to their house at Christmas time. Like, you go because the, the mashed potatoes are really good. Or you go because they make the best ham. Or you go because they give you the best stuff. Right? Some of us treat God that way. We go to Him only when we need Him. Only when we want something. Only when we think He can give us something that we can't get any other way. Like grandma. Right? 
That's not the God that created you and invited you into salvation. The God that created you and invited you into salvation is the God that's always dwelling with you. He's always there. So is Christ dwelling in your life? Or is he grandma? Ask your question tonight. Who is he? Maybe you need to pray that God would be more real in your life. He would completely and fully envelop your life. That's my prayer for you tonight. Let's pray together, uh, and then we'll be done. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather here in your name. I want to pray for each student tonight for the two things that I've mentioned. Maybe they don't have a relationship with you. But even if they do, there are people that they will walk into before 9 o'clock in the morning that do not. Guaranteed. Maybe before they walk out of this place tonight, they stop off on the way home, or maybe they have someone in their home that doesn't know you, Jesus. What are we going to do about that? We are your mouthpiece here on this earth. But God, some of us here tonight are already believers, but you're just kind of hanging out. You're just kind of around. We go to you when we need something, but you're really not dwelling fully in us. We go to you when we have problems. We ask you to help us out. Every now and then we do something back for you. But God, that's not what you've called us to be. So maybe tonight we need to, we need to pray that you would forgive us of that. We would come in and fully envelop our lives. Because everything is about you, God. I pray for that tonight. I pray that for myself tonight. God, would you do that? God, we love you. We thank you. It's in your name I pray tonight.